Welcome back to another episode of the Next Level Minds podcast. If this is your first time tuning in today, then I am the founder and podcast host of Next Level Minds, and this is a podcast dedicated to those who want to reach a next level in their business, personal, or career life. Every other week, I'm blessed to sit down with a fully qualified guest, entrepreneur, content creator, or mover and shaker in their industry, and really walk through their story of how they have gotten from point A to point B and overcame various adversities along the way. Now, before we introduce today's guest and dive into the episode, I just wanted to go ahead and reiterate my main goal here, which is to impact over 1 million people by helping them reach a next level in their business, personal, or career life. So if you have not done this already, hit that subscribe button on uh, the Next Level Minds podcast on Apple Podcasts. Share this episode with a family member, friend, or colleague who you think will get some value out of it. And if you're really feeling special, drop a review of Next Level Minds on Apple Podcasts and uh, really just let me know what you think. On to today's guest, I'm sitting down with Josh Kaufman, who's the best-selling author of uh, three different books, which is The Personal MBA, The First 20 Hours, and How to Fight Hydra. Face your fears, pursue your ambitions, and become the hero you are destined to be. Uh, Josh has been featured as the number one best-selling author in business and money, as ranked by Amazon.com, and his books have sold over a million copies worldwide. Uh, Josh's TED Talk on the first 20 hours is one of the top 25 most viewed TED Talks published to date with over 26 million views on YouTube. Safe to say that Josh Kaufman is the master of everything business. So y'all are in for a real treat today. I'm super excited to sit down with Josh and really pick his brain, learn more about his book that I've read, and just go in on everything business. And as we like to say here at Next Level Minds, your mindset is your greatest weapon for the battle of success. Josh, thanks for taking the time to be on the Next Level Minds podcast. Chris, thanks for having me. Absolutely. How's everything in Colorado going right now? It is a beautiful day here, uh, sunny and warm and not a cloud in the sky. Yeah, I was, you know, we were joking about your background earlier. I mean, it looks absolutely gorgeous from what I can tell. Thanks. Yeah, it's we're maybe 15, 20 miles from the mountains here. And, and so um, it's, it's wonderful to look out the back door and, and see a lot of natural beauty. Yeah. Are you a big hiker in your free time? Uh, hiking is is amazing. Hiking in in the the spring and fall, and then snowshoeing in the winter is really fun. Oh, nice! That's awesome. Was it hard? I know you mentioned kind of off- offline that your your wife's originally from there. Was it hard to find? Obviously, like all the cool spots and everything, or did it just kind of come with practice? Oh, there's there's parks and trails, and you know, just walk out your back door and and go for a walk, and it's and it's beautiful. So so yeah, there's there's a a trail here that. I'll usually spend, you know, 45 minutes to an hour uh, every day, just kind of waking up and getting my head in the game. And then, you know, whether, whether you like, you know, camping or exploring, there are a whole bunch of reservoirs and trails and parks and, and more, more to explore here than, than you could in a year. Mm. And so it's, it's really fun just to, uh, when you remember a couple of years ago when the solar eclipse was happening, mm-hmm. We 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 hiked to the top of of this bluff with a reservoir in the background in the mountains and just like watched the whole thing and it was it was just gorgeous and definitely things that you can't do anywhere else. Yeah, that whole solar eclipse thing was crazy. You know where I was watching it, it literally turned almost completely dark for for a few minutes and then it just you could hear bugs and all that and then bam right back to just normal day and everything. Yeah. The craziest thing that I remember from that is that, uh, it's just kind of, you know, natural background bugs, birds, all of that stuff, just going completely silent. Like the whole natural world was just like, what is going on? It, and then, yeah. you know, two minutes later, three minutes later, everything gets back, back to normal. But, but I didn't expect an auditory uh, component of that experience. And it was no. definitely there. No, for sure. I'm, I'm sure wildlife was just extremely confused on what the heck was going on. 
Um, nice, Josh. Well, obviously, you know, you've written three books and, you know, you have a massive TEDx talk out there. And I know you do a, a significant amount of consulting work and research work as well. So before we get into all that, I mean, what, what was uh, teenage Josh Kaufman like? And, and, you know, what kind of learning lessons at a young age have you really implemented into your life now? Oh, my goodness. I think that's a question that no one has ever asked me. So there we go. Congratulations on that. That's, that's amazing. No, um, teenage Josh um, was always a v- very curious sort of guy. Um, so I remember uh, I, I spent a good chunk of um, early to mid-childhood into high school uh, reading. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, starting, starting in fiction, uh, reading all of all of the classics of science fiction and fantasy. I, I've I've never met a book that had a dragon in it that I didn't like. Um, hard science fiction is is amazing, and so and it kind of towards high school started branching out into uh, more straightforward science, engineering, physics sorts of things. Um, thought I wanted to be a computer engineer for a long time, and so mm-hmm. it's like all right, you know, let's let's start learning how how uh, certain things work. And so I remember like I was reading um, the physicist Brian Greene's books on um, quantum physics and string theory when, when I was a junior, senior in college. Like just d- always had this, or, sorry, junior, senior in high school. Um, I always had this curiosity of like, how, how does the world work? What is our place in it? How do we use that understanding of how things work to make our lives better in, in some way. And early on, I didn't really have a clear picture of, of what that looked like or, or how I would know it when I saw it. I just, I just knew that I wanted that. Um, and then, you know, there were, there were all sorts of different ideas that when, when I read about them or, uh, or researched them, like they were interesting, but they didn't really make sense to me. And, and so one of the earliest core drives that I really remember is, is wanting to know how things work, caring deeply about having an accurate understanding of how the world works, and then just wanting to use, wanting to use that knowledge to help myself and my loved ones and, and other people. And so uh, that's what prompted the, um, the forays initially into business. So, you know, I, I, I had my early exploration of, of engineering phase in, in the early part of college and took a tremendous amount of, away from that in terms of mindset and experience and a way of looking at problems and a way of, of solving issues that I still really use today. But I realized very quickly, like that's, that's not where I want to focus my, my energy. I, I could theoretically sit in a lab, you know, designing computer processors and that version of Josh Kaufman would not be necessarily a, a happy or satisfied uh, uh, individual. And so the interest in business is like, I don't necessarily care so much about the deep technology. Mm-hmm. I care about how it's used. I care about what we do with it, what it's for, how it changes the world, how it changes our lives. And so when I started studying business, this, this whole world opened up of like, no, this, this is, this is exactly what I'm looking for. Let's, let's use technology. Let's use system. Let's use process. Let's use psychology and communication and, and all of these things, you know, how, how we work as people to make our lives better and to make other people's lives better. And so, you know, once, once I found that as a subject, I'm like, all right, I'm in the right place. And just, um, tried to read and research and learn and experiment as many things as I could, as widely as I could, and uh, took a tremendous amount of value away from that in in the later part of my college years, uh, up into the early part of of my my working career. Mm. That's so cool that you mentioned you're just always curious because you know I know one of your specialties is research, so it's almost like you've had so many years of experience of that because you were obviously so curious at an early age. A um, couple of questions on that. So, you know, you're obviously an extremely well-spoken individual. Um, so 
normally from from growing up, people who who read a lot, at least you know when I was growing up, those were more of the quiet individuals, not as extroverted. So were you more like an introverted type of individual, or was it kind of a hybrid of both? Uh, a hybrid of both. So nice. at least from an energy perspective, definitely very introverted. Um, I I am. COVID was not a big deal for me because, you know, just sitting in your house, reading a bunch of books like that, that that's what I do anyway. Um, it's, it's interesting. Like I, yeah. So from, from an energy perspective, I would much prefer to just stick to myself from a growing up life experience perspective. I really had a mixture of a bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. Um, I was, I was involved in a very wide variety um, of activities in in high school and college, um, the what the one that had the biggest impact was um, high school and college mock trial. So for a while, I thought I was going to be an attorney, and the whole thing it's it if you've never heard of it, it's it's fascinating. It's it's a blend of research analysis and legal argumentation and improvisational acting. And so the way the whole thing works is you get a case binder about this thick at the beginning of the season and your team or your school is responsible for uh, developing the prosecution or the plaintiff side of the case and the defense side of the case. And you kind of have a team for both. And in that team, you have attorneys and witnesses. So some people are playing the parts of people who will be testifying on the stand some people are going to act in the role of attorneys questioning and cross-examining the people who are being witnesses. And it's an enormous amount of fun. And it, you, you learn a lot about how the legal system works. You, you get the, you know, thinking like a lawyer bit, mm-hmm. how to prepare an argument, how to speak persuasively, how to um, communicate a point in a way that is clear and concise and compelling and easy to follow. And so, yeah, eight years of doing that, you know, even with my introverted tendencies, uh, really went a long way in helping both the, the communication skills, the speaking, you know, some of, some of those things, but then also just the, the research and the writing and trying to construct an argument or tell a story or, you know, take, take someone mentally and emotionally from point A to point B. Um, I use that all the time Hmm. in my, uh, in my writing and in my research and, and in my consulting and advising, it's all the same skill. Yeah. You kind of took that question. I was about to ask how I'm out. I was going to say like, did did doing the research on that and looking at both sides on the mock trials, did it kind of influence your writing style in today's time? Yeah, absolutely. Nice. And it, it's the biggest skill and, and really the thing that is the most important to do regardless. The world is awash in information. There's mm-hmm. more information. There's, there's, there's more facts. There's more data than we can ever deal with. And so the real skill is, is taking an enormous amount of information and going through it in the sense of making sure that you have high confidence that you're not missing something important, but then really trying to distill that, that fire hose of information into the core salient points that are going to make a difference in a decision or in an argument or in a recommendation. And so just that, that process of thinking, reading through a whole bunch of things and, and thinking about, all right, what's really critical here? What are the pieces that we need to emphasize? What are some things that we can de-emphasize or ignore completely and not really lose anything important by doing that? And so even now, when, when I read a book, um, I don't read cover to cover. Mm. Um, so the vast majority of books are, are, are a preview or a going through the entire uh, piece of information as a whole and trying to get a sense of the structure, trying to get a sense of, okay, what's, what's the core argument? How are they supporting that argument? What are some of the sources? How did this information come about? And after you have that information, you can figure, all right, is this something that I'm going to profit from spending more time with? Or do I, do I get the point? Mm-hmm. Um, there are a lot of books that are essentially, you know, three or four primary points padded out into 250 or 300 pages of, of material. 
And if you get the two or three important points, then yeah, you've gotten the vast majority of the value from the, the, the information. You can say, all right, I can come back to this if I need more of it, but I'm going to go look at something else. Yeah. And, uh, oh, and, and then there are some sources where you spend a little time with it. It's like, this is deep and this is awesome. And this is something that I really need to study in detail because I'm going to get a lot out of it. So that's how you can start to filter, you know, here's where I should be spending my time because it's important. And here are all the things that I can just get the the gesture, just get the the important information and move on. Yeah. That's, that's so funny you say that because I was just having a conversation with a friend of mine about this information overload of so many books, so many podcasts, so many, you know, people on Instagram, some of which aren't knowing what they're talking about at all, some of which are. It's kind of like take information in segments, implement it into different parts of your life and, and try your best not to have that information overload happen to you. Totally. Yeah. So something I want to touch on too, you talked about how you, you kind of, you know, have valued systems since an early age. I know before you were involved in all that you're doing now, you obviously spent some time in corporate America. So I guess two items here, you know, what, what did that really teach you about uh, business systems? And then number two, you mentioned that that path you were on showed you the path you, you didn't want to be on. So I'd love if you could kind of walk through that as well. Sure. So, um, I entered corporate America around the time where the internet was just starting to be a real driving force. And so um, it was really interesting coming in. I was a, it was in my second year of college when I started working. Um, so the, the program that I went to for undergrad um, and the reason I went there is, is it had essentially a 50, 50 mix of, full-time school and full-time work. Hmm. And so hmm. it was a five-year program. Um, by the time that I graduated, I had a somewhere between a year and a half and two years of full-time work experience at one of the largest companies in the world, uh, Procter & Gamble, which is a, if you've never heard of it, um, you've probably heard of some of the brands, you know, Tide, Crest. Um, I worked in the home care division, um, which was kind of the heritage of the company. The company started... Uh, by making soap and candles during the Civil War, and it's been around ever since. Mm. And so uh, I, I worked in in the home care division. Um, so so Dawn, Cascade, Febreze, Swiffer, and Mister Clean were the the brands that I worked on. And uh, originally was was doing some um, internet development stuff. It's hard to believe, but at that time, the company was was hiring these external agencies and paying them like a quarter of a million dollars to put up a very simple website. And so I kind of got, I was brought into the company as the sanity check on that. It was like, Hey, you know, we're, we're thinking about doing this is, does that make sense? Like, no, that doesn't make sense. Let's save a bunch of money by doing it this way. That sort of thing. Um, moved from there into product development. So um, every once in a while there will be an article like in the, Wall Street Journal or something about the extreme lengths that P&G goes to research how people use paper towels or something. Hmm. And so I got to be one of those people. I drove all over the place, um, sat in lots of meetings, watched people mop their floors, um, brought out different bottles of like all pur all purpose cleaner and have people smell them and took notes on what they thought about it. Wow. You know, all of that stuff. And, and the core skill there is watching and listening and paying very close attention to the minute details of what someone is doing or what a group of people is doing. Hmm. And then trying to get the salient points from it and then come back to the company saying, this is what I'm seeing. This is what I'm hearing. This is what I think is important and what sh we should focus on and what we shouldn't focus on. That job I loved. It was, it was great. You know, as as weird as you know, designing the you know what what the next bottle of dish soap should look like, it was fascinating because it was this mix of you know almost like understanding what the scientists can do and understanding what people want, and then understanding what the business system is capable of producing and shipping and supporting and all of that. Like you're trying to fit this whole puzzle together, and if you do it right you come out with a product that can be, you know, tens, hundreds of millions, billions of dollars in, in value. Super great. Uh, 
so I did that for a few years. I, um, I got experience on the sales side. And mm. so I, you know, was in negotiations with Walmart and Target and Sam's Club and Costco and Kroger and all of these huge retailers and got to see, all right, you know, we've made something. How do we sell it to a retailer? How do we ship it through to customers? How do we handle logistics? You know, if, if you have a whole bunch of Swiffer handles in China and they need to get here by a certain time so we don't go out of, out of stock at Walmart, how, do we put it on a plane or do we put it on a boat sorts of, sorts of decisions? And so it was interesting, like the, in a very short period of time, I got the entire view, like all of the different parts of the business, how they fit together, um, how one part of, of the system flows into the next. And it was that experience that really, you know, I, I had had my own you know, entrepreneurship adventures on the side, you know, in, in high school and in college and, and even, you know, to a certain extent while I was working at P&G. And so it was this, this interesting juxtaposition of seeing like the system, how one of the largest companies in the entire world operates, and then seeing how my little one-person businesses that are, are barely forming, seeing how those work, and then being able to look at the commonalities between the two. Like mm. what makes a one-person startup and a, a global multinational corporation with hundreds of thousands of employees, like what makes both of those a business? Mm. And it was that, it was that research and, and that, um, thinking around that, that turned into the very first, um, work around the personal MBA. And so the thing that didn't work for me, so it had, it was a fascinating learning experience and it's always a bad thing when you look at your boss and your boss's boss and you think to yourself, all right, if I do really well here, this is what I can expect my life to look like in, you know, two years, five years, 10 years. And I just saw too many people who you know, would, would leave for work early in the morning to commute in. And you know, they, they'd kiss their kids on the forehead on the way out the door before they were awake. And they'd be at work all day and then they'd stay late and then they'd drive home and they'd kiss their kids on the forehead uh, as, as they went to sleep. And that was their life. Like, I don't, I don't want that. I don't want that for me. You know, I don't, I don't want to live a life where 95% of my waking hours are spent in meetings. That's just not something that I'm interested in. And so I remember that my, my breaking point was, um, I was, I was working in a product. I was selling a product in a big, big, I think this was like a $20 million product launch. Hmm. And I remember having a meeting to prepare for a meeting to prepare for a meeting, to prepare for a meeting. Like four levels of recursion is too much for me. I am done. <laughs> I'm going to do something else with my life. That's funny. And majority of meetings too are a huge waste of time that could probably be put in it. Nothing like a $20 million product launch, but majority of meetings are a waste of time and could probably be an email as well. It's something you probably saw in corporate America. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's this idea of communication overhead, which mm -hmm. is you know, the more people you have involved, the more time everybody needs to spend communicating with each other just to make sure everybody's on the same page and working in, in towards the same goal and moving in the, the same direction. So part of it is just a function of like, when you have a lot of people, you're just going to spend a lot of time in communication. There's, there's almost no other way to do it. But there's an enormous amount of latitude in the context of a career of the environment that you want to work in and and for me that that level of constant communication was just maddening. Yeah. That's so interesting you realized cuz a lot of people don't realize it. They keep working for the same company till they're 65, 70 years old and they're in that position where they like you mentioned 95% of their their life is meetings. That's so like great that you were able to realize that at such a kind of early point in the career like hey, you know what? I'm on this trajectory but I don't want to be at this point not spending any time with my kids, leaving early, getting back late for the rest of my life. It was an interesting transition. I know I remember um, 
my dad thought I was nuts. I'm like, hey, dad, I'm gonna I'm gonna quit my job and you know start start my own thing. And you know, for for context, he was a public educator for for 35 years. Hmm. And and so the idea is like, no, you got the job. You got the job at the big company. This is secure. This is stable. This is predictable. It's high paying. It might be higher paying in the future. Why give up why give up a sure thing for essentially a lottery ticket? And and the reason came down fundamentally to that. Like even if the sure thing works out, that doesn't lead to the life that I'm going to find interesting and rewarding and valuable. And we'll look back on saying, yeah, I'm, I'm happy with the decisions that I made. So even if it's a risk and even if I need to give something up in the short term, it's really important to understand and honor what I value from this part of life. And, and some of that, yeah, is, is money. And, you know, it's important to, to, uh, to be able to pay your bills and put food on the table and and raise your kids and you know all of that is is important and you're allowed to optimize for more than one thing mm-hmm. and so for me it's like it needed to be a combination of of yeah this is this is valuable in the sense of of doing what work is supposed to do uh, in terms of of providing for for self and family and also you know it needs to be something that is interesting and enjoyable and 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 valuable. And if it's if it's not a good combination of those two, it's not sustainable. Yeah. That's a good point. That I mean, those are two things to go off of. It has to be, you know, sustainable for you. You have to love what you're doing and you need to be able to provide actually for the family and everything. So I mean I, I love surfing, but surfing would not provide for my family. Yeah. So you kind of have to have both aligned with each other. Right. And and it's perfectly okay to be like, all right. I want a job that's going to, you know, do the work that a job does, which is pay the bills and, you know, and that needs to leave me ample time for surfing because that's important and valuable. And I want to have that as part of my life. I think there's, there's kind of a trap in the other direction, which is asking or demanding your work to be everything all at once in every direction. And so, you know, you, you can kind of, over-optimize to your detriment in, in either, either direction. You know, you, you, it doesn't necessarily have to be rainbows and puppies every waking moment of every day. Um, as long as you get what you need to get out of it and you have the time and the energy and the capacity to do all of the other things that you value as well. I love that. That's, that's such a good point. Um, so you alluded to it a bit, but, you know, personal MBA, you mentioned a lot of your, your research for that book kind of started maybe at the tail end of, of P&G. So I would just love, in, in your opinion, as the author, you know, what, what is the personal MBA? What is that book? Yeah. So the, the personal MBA is, is my attempt to answer the question of what is a business and how does a business work? And so it's it's organized in a a slightly different format than than a lot of business books. So a lot of business books will just focus really hard on one topic. Like this is a book about sales and we're going to talk about sales approaches and sales techniques and you know really really go deep on one specific aspect of of what's going on. And what I realized um this is when when I started studying business um seriously as a topic. I realized that nobody really bothered to define what it is or, you know, what businesses do or what businesses, how they work. It was like, everybody just assumed everybody knew what we were talking about and, and didn't bother to, to really define it in a useful way. Hmm. And so I, you know, even, even the business courses I took in college were very siloed and very narrow. And there was no attempt to, to integrate it into a, a comprehensive understanding of, of what was going on. And so the personal MBA for me was I was I was working in a huge business, working in tiny businesses, reading business books, you know, collecting all of this information. And what became very apparent to me is there's there's a core of knowledge here that's really important. You know, regardless of whether you're a solo entrepreneur or you're working at one of the largest companies in the world, there's a core set of ideas that when you know them and when you can use them, you can do 
wonderful things with them because they really get to the essence of what a business is, how it works, and how to make it better. And so the objective for the personal MBA is like, all right, let's, instead of, you know, leaving all of these important concepts to be, you know, locked in hundreds of books and life experiences and things that you may or may not have access to, let's just take all the most important stuff and put it into one book in straightforward and clear language that even someone who has had no business experience whatsoever, you know, an alien comes to earth and they don't know what a business is and they've never, like, how would you explain how businesses work to someone who doesn't know? And that's, that's what became the personal MBA. I, I really tried to find the most important ideas about this area of life and just put them in a straightforward, clear um, explanation. So someone could you know, read this one thing and, and take away a much more comprehensive and useful understanding than they had when they started. Mm. You know, it's funny with it too, as you mentioned about an example of a book, you know, 250 pages, maybe some of it's fluff, just get the, the points and then don't finish the rest. I actually, not gonna lie, went into this book with that mindset because it was a thicker book. And then I literally read it from cover to cover because it almost like every single chapter added value to, to what I was doing, which was, you know, growing a business outside of the eight to five. So just That's wanted to- amazing. I'm yeah. glad to hear that. Yeah. So no, none of it's fluff. I mean, it's all it's all powerful information. Just wanted to, to mention that to the listeners. Um, and you mentioned showing business or a, an alien kind of reading about, about business for the first time. So I know in, in one of the first chapters, you talk about the five process- five processes with every business, value creation, marketing, sales, value delivery, and finance. So out of those, are they equally all important or is there one maybe when you're first starting your business that you should focus on a bit more than those other uh, five areas there? Oh, oh, that's a great question. So they are equally important for a very specific reason. And that is, if you don't have one of those core business processes, you don't have a business, you have something Mm. else. So imagine like you've created the most valuable thing in the world. Everybody wants it. You're selling a whole bunch of it and people are throwing money at you, but you have no means of delivering that to the world. You don't have a business. The entire structure falls apart. You know, you do everything, but you're not collecting enough money to, to keep the lights on and, and, and to pay your employees and to pay your suppliers. Your business is done. Game over. If you don't have anything to sell, you don't have a business. If nobody knows you exist, you don't have a business. And so, you know, each of these things, like the, the, the core parts of every business are my attempt to define what a business is and, and what it does. Hmm. And so um, it, to the point where, where when I'm working with, with early stage entrepreneurs, you know, a, a very common question is like, how do I write a business plan? What's a business plan? Do I need one? Is this useful? Like this is a, very straightforward exercise. Get a sheet of paper. You write value creation, marketing, sales, value delivery, and finance. And you just try to describe in plain English, how am I going to make something useful that other people will want or need? Value creation. How am I going to get the attention of people who might find this useful? That's marketing. How do I get the people who now know this exists to pull out their wallet, checkbook, or credit card and give me money? That's sales. When I take somebody's money, how am I going to actually deliver the thing that I promised them? Because if I don't, um, it's not a business, it's a scam. That's value delivery. And then finance is like, all right, when we're doing this, we're spending money, typically. When we're selling things, we're making money. So are we bringing in more money than we're spending? And is it enough to make all of this time and effort worthwhile? That's finance. And if we collect that information, we might be able to make better decisions in terms of how we create value, how we market, how we sell, and how we deliver value. That's finance too. And so, you know, those, those five core processes are, once you have that model in your head, you can do so many valuable and amazing things with it because it, it allows you to cut through all of the distractions and really just hone in on the parts of the system that are working hmm. and the parts of the system that are either not present or dysfunctional or could could um, benefit from a, a lot of attention or improvement. 
And so, yeah, like even just that idea, having that in your head allows you to do so much more useful, um, practical value adding um, activities than if you didn't understand it. And so I tried to organize the personal MBA as a book really around these core ideas. What are the things that once you know them, everything gets easier and you're, you're in a much better position to make improvements. Man, I love that it just goes down to those five because you talked about information overload. And I feel like with, with business plans, it's like, ah, like, where do I even start? But if you just go at those five, then it's like, there you go. And it takes a lot of your a weight off your chest, if you will. Yeah, totally. I mean, there's there are so many things to think about. There are so many things to worry about. There are so many unknowns at the beginning of the process. It's like just being able to say, forget all of that stuff. I don't need to decide whether I'm going to, you know, get angel financing or VC dollars. Like that can come later if we need it. Let's just really de- define what are we trying to do? Who is it going to help? How are we going to get their attention? Uh, how are we going to convince them that we can actually deliver this thing for them? Do they want it or not? Let's just focus there for a little while. Hmm. And and if you do, and you're able to figure out something that people want and figure out a way to deliver it to them, then all of the later questions, you know, particularly on, on the finance side or the financing side, tend to resolve themselves or become much clearer because you reach a stage of like, all right, we need to build a factory. Well, I don't have enough money in my checkbook to pay for a factory now. So let's go and start looking at some financing options, things like that. But, but yeah, just having a framework in your mind about what it is you're fundamentally doing and how it works just makes so many things much easier than they otherwise would be. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Can you talk about the, uh, the caveman syndrome for a little bit? I thought that was something oh, yeah, like, totally. super interesting in your book. Yeah, so um, the the book itself, for for listeners who who haven't read it yet, it's kind of structured into three main parts. So we talk about business, you know, in in the context of the five parts of every business, and in part one, and then uh, part two is about people, and part three is about systems. So you know, businesses are created by people for the benefit of other people. And so if you don't understand how people work, you're going to be at a severe disadvantage when it comes to marketing, when it comes to selling, when it comes to managing people, uh, all of this stuff, it's critical. And one of those things is managing yourself. So how do you get things done? How do you encourage yourself to use your time and energy in, in productive ways that are going to lead to the end result that you want? And you know, not spend all of your time browsing Reddit. And so, the caveman syndrome is is this idea of human beings in in our current uh, incarnation. Um, we haven't been dealing with things like the internet for very long. Um, we haven't been sitting in the grand scope of human history. We haven't been sitting in offices for very long. Um, the the environment that our bodies and our brains are optimized to exist in and operate well in look very, very different from the demands that we're placing on ourselves on, on a day-to-day basis. And so, you know, it, it used to be, uh, just think, think about how our bodies uh, respond to stress. So, so imagine in an ancestral environment, um, you notice that you might be that that maybe you're being followed by a predator and you know you you can imagine the type of physiological response that that would evoke right you know your heart starts racing you get all jittery the adrenaline rushes and and you go into fight or flight sort of thing that's super constructive in that environment and and it's important to note that that in our historical environment those periods were relatively short and so, you know, maybe on the order of minutes, on the high end, maybe, you know, on the order of hours. But imagine going into work and having to deal with a terrible boss every single day for eight to 10 hours a day for potentially years. Like we just were not built for that. We, our bodies and our brains and our mind are not optimized for that particular environment. Mm. 
And so I think understanding this idea is, is valuable in, in two specific ways. Um, one is understanding it helps us cut ourselves a good amount of slack when it comes to, you know, not being able to do certain things or being frustrated that, you know, you can't sit down at your computer and laser focus, concentrate for 16 hours a day, sleep for two hours and, and get up and do it again. It's like, no, we, it's not how we work. It's never going to work. You know, expecting ourselves to act like robots or having the ideal of, you know, I should be able to decide exactly what I'm going to do and force myself to do it and just push through. That's, a, that's a, an approach that's highly likely to fail because mm. it's, it's not recognizing certain fundamental needs that we have as, as human beings. And so if we can cut ourselves some slack, in that it, like we're, we're doing something hard. We're trying to adapt essentially, you know, legacy hardware and we're trying to run very new software on it in a way that's kludgy and, and honestly not very reliable. Mm-hmm. So if we understand that that's the reality, then we can start to do things to help ourselves comp- compensate. And so this is why it's funny. Every once in a while, I'll, I'll get an email from somebody who read the books. Like, I don't understand why you talk about sleep and exercise and food and, you know, all, all of these, like, this is a business book. You're supposed to talk about businessy things. I'm like, no, if this goes wrong, all of the rest of it's going to go wrong too. Like you, your body is the tool that you are using to get all of this done. And if you don't pay attention to how that works and how to, to, Set yourself up for success in the sense of giving your body and your brain and your emotions all of the inputs that they need to operate effectively and well. You're going to have a really difficult time getting anything done. Mm. That's so funny you say that because January, February, March, I you know worked out every day, drank a gallon of water, read, got eight hours of sleep. Still on that method, but it's more like 28 out of 31 days. Uh, but those three months were the best months I've ever had in business. And I'm looking back at the first half of the year and I'm like, huh, I think it was because I was putting mental health and physical health at utmost importance for three months straight and then watch how it compounded into those other areas of your life. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely true. I noticed the same thing. Um, it's also like, you know, coming at the tail end of, of uh, this, this wonderful historical experiment called COVID like social needs have come to the forefront as one of those things that were really optimized around having a tight social group and, you know, having people are in our immediate environment, having a lot of interaction. And so, you know, it's, it's really interesting to, to see and hear when that is substantially reduced over an extended period of time, not just what that does from a work productivity standpoint, and it's not, it's not great. Um, but also from from a, a mental health and emotional health, a um, satisfaction and 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 well being, you know, in in terms of day to day life, like it's really important, and it's really important to know that that is something that you need and in, in to get in some way, shape, or form. And I, I know this is this is a trap that that I fell into um, early on in my career. Again, introvert. I was like, I just, I have things to do. So I'm just going to go away for two weeks and lock myself in a room. I'm going to get it all done and then I'll be great. And I remember um, I was, I was working on a book manuscript at a time and I kind of accidentally put myself in, into uh, a form of self-imposed solitary confinement mm. under the idea that like, I'm going to get an enormous amount of things done under this period. And I was a wreck. And I got far less done than I thought I was going to. It was not a pleasant experience. It's like, huh, this is something, like if you ignore these fundamental human inputs, you can't shortcut those things on the way to theoretically improved productivity. Those are things that you have to notice and pay attention to and honor. And And when you do, you end up getting so much more done than if you try to ignore it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's a really good point. So speaking of that, putting yourself, you know, in, in, I guess, unintentional 
solitary confinement through doing that. Uh, can you talk about the 20 hour rule about kind of learning a new skill? I know your, your TEDx talk, by the way, has over 26 million views. Uh, so I don't know if you saw any updated numbers there, but amazing TED talk. Like I'd love if you could just kind of walk through kind of the four points that you mentioned in that. Yeah. So, so the, the idea of the first 20 hours is that, um, I noticed that I backing up a step, I really like to look at fundamental, fundamental skills, fundamental areas of life that have enormous returns. So the personal MBA is a good part. Like if you understand how businesses work, you can do a lot of really valuable, cool stuff with that knowledge. And so I was just thinking, there was, there was one day where I was thinking like, we learn like all the things that we, we use to make a living, to live a satisfying life, you know, all of our hobbies, all of those, these aren't things that we were born knowing how to do. Like we had, we had to learn it. And hey, how does that work? Because that's like, this is a really cool capability of our brains to figure out how to do something new and cool and fun and interesting and useful. It's probably worth learning or having a better understanding of how that works. But then I also noticed that when I was doing the research, so much of the body of knowledge around that was all focused at the very far end of the spectrum in terms of you know expertise or like being really, really, really good at something. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to the experience or the practice of actually doing this in our lives, most of us spend most of our time at the very beginning of the process. You know, I, you're at work and somebody's like, can you put together, put me together, uh, put together a spreadsheet of this thing? And you're like, what's a spreadsheet? And you just uh, like, you have to figure it out. And so in terms of like where we spend most of our time, it's, it's usually at the early stages of mm-hmm. skill acquisition. And so um, this was also a time that, that I talk about um, in, in, in the TED Talk where my daughter was just born and I love learning how to do new things, but all of a sudden I had very, very little free time to, you know, just, just kind of brute force my way through it. Like, all right, this is important. I want to know how this works. It seems like the early phase is really important. And so can I figure out how to get really good at things without investing a whole lot of time in it? So that's where the first 20 hours as a concept was born. Um, there's a very straightforward process that most people use. The people who are effective at doing this well use it implicitly. They're not kind of going through it consciously, but these are the things that work and there are certain reasons that it works. And so um, there's an additional, I think you mentioned the in the video, I talk about four steps. There's a... Uh, there's a fifth step in there, which, which is probably you know, better, better phrased as step zero, is uh, deciding exactly what you want to be able to do. Hmm. You know, in, in the years since I've done this research, published the book, you know, talked about this with a lot of people, I've noticed that most people, when they decide they want to learn something, it's, it's either on the like, imaginary, you know, theoretical, wouldn't it be fun if I could, blah, but it doesn't really come down to like, deciding exactly what you want to be able to do. Um, there's a difference between the, the example I often use is like, there's a difference between like, I want to learn Italian and like, I'm going to go to Rome next month and I want to be able to order my meals in the restaurants and the local, like there's, there's a, a distinguishing factor there that's really important. And so, you know, step zero, decide what you want to be able to do. And the clearer and more more concise you can make that, the better you can plan around doing things that are going to get you to that specific end state. Um, Once you have that, the next step is deconstructing the skill into smaller parts. And the best illustration of this, I think, um, I'm not a golfer, but most people are going to know what that looks like. You can imagine, you know, uh, hitting the ball off the tee. Is that that the right terminology at the beginning? The skill that is, you know, whacking this tiny ball as far as you possibly can and the skill of putting the ball into the hole on the green, 
you're playing the same game, but those are two wildly different skills. And so the global skill of being good at golf is not just one thing. It's a bundle of smaller sub-skills that you just happen to use in, in uh, conjunction with each other. And so most skills have this quality where you can take a look at what it is you're trying to do and deconstruct it, break it into smaller parts. And it will become very apparent with just a little bit of research or watching somebody, you know, who's really good at this, uh, do it or, or, or work for a certain period of time where you can start to figure out some of these things are more important than others. And so, you know, going with the golf example, you could theoretically, the first thing that you do to learn golf would be, you know, playing with a sand wedge. You could do that, but it's not going to bring you the biggest improvement um, versus, you know, getting uh, comfortable with a driver or a putter, for example. And so, you know, the deconstruction lets you kind of hone in on the things that you're going to use the most. And the next step, research, is going out into the world and collecting information about, A, what are those most important subskills? And then what are the things that you really need to keep in mind while you practice those things first? And a little bit of research goes a very long way. Um, so too much research is a subtle form of procrastination because reading about this thing or watching videos about it or you know, doing whatever is not going to help you improve. You actually have to do the thing in order to get good at it. With me so far? Yeah, I got it. So deconstruct, or sorry, first one is decide actually what you want to learn, step zero, yep. and then actually deconstruct. And then two, are you on kind of the learn research side of things now? Yep, yep, yep. research. And so you and got then, research and then that, what, there's two more, right? Two, two more. So one is a practical uh, step, uh, kind of related to the caveman syndrome thing that we were talking about earlier. Uh, remove barriers to practice. Mm. So do anything that you possibly can to make it less likely that you will be interrupted or distracted or have an excuse for not practicing today or you know all of the things that, that modern life throws at us um, that make it less likely for you to invest time and energy doing the thing you want to do. Um, so this is, this is reasonably straightforward. Um, turn off your cell phone, close the door, make sure you have your tools in, you know, in a place where you can always find them close at hand that doesn't require a lot of energy for you to, um, to, to pick it up. This is like for people who want to play guitar, sit the guitar on a stand like right next to your desk or right next to your bed or right next to a chair you always sit in. So starting to practice is literally just like reaching over, picking it up and starting to go. Anything that you can do to remove some of that friction makes it that much easier to actually sit down and, and practice. And then the, the last step is where the first 20 hours gets its name. And it's, it's a psychological tool called pre-commitment. And it's, it's pre-committing to 20 hours of focus practice. And what I noticed, um, I used myself as a guinea pig for this book um, because there was, there was a, a lot of research that indicated that the early hours of, the early period of skill acquisition is by far the most efficient period of time in terms of improvement per minute or per hour spent. Um, this is something called the power law of practice. It's been replicated over and over and over again. Um, when you start at something that you've never done, performance-wise, you're really bad. You're pretty much always really bad. But then when you look at how much you improve, the, the, the graph for improvement goes like this. Like you, mm. you, you get a handle on it and you go from like not being able to do it at all to being like pretty reasonable in a short period of time. And so the goal is, all right, how long does it take to get to that? I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm terrible. This is awful. I want to stop doing this because I'm bad feeling. And getting to the point of being good enough, skilled enough to get results that you're looking for and to not have that terrible mental and emotional experience of like, oh my, oh my gosh, I'm terrible at this. I want to, I want to stop. And so what I found 
is that that always happens. Like the early stage is always the most efficient, but it's also the most emotionally challenging. It's the part we don't want to do because mm. adult learners in particular hate, 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 hate to feel like they're terrible at something. We'll do almost anything to avoid it. And so pre-commitment is a behavioral psychology tool that is essentially saying, all right, if I'm going to do this at all, I'm going to do it for a certain period of time. So I'm, going, I, I'm committing to myself right now, no matter how terrible I am, no matter how much I don't like it, no matter how much I'm frustrated, I'm going to practice this for 20 hours. Because in my research and in my experimentation, I found that pretty much regardless of the skill, you will see a substantial improvement somewhere between the zero and 20 hour mark. And so the 20 hour pre-commitment does two very important things. First, it's kind of, it's a good filter of, you know, if if you're like, nah, I'm not, this thing isn't worth investing 20 hours. And you're probably better off not, putting your time there, doing something that has a higher potential return for you. So it's kind of a good gut check filter on, are you, is this really valuable enough for you to spend the time in the first place? Hmm. If it is, the 20 hour pre-commitment is your best defense against uh, something that I call the frustration barrier, which is just that, that overwhelming feeling of like, ah, I'm terrible. I want to like, I want to stop and do something else. And so you can give yourself full permission, like, all right, when I get to 20 hours and if I still hate it and I'm still terrible and I still don't see any value and I still don't think that I'm ever going to get any better at this, I have full permission to quit, but I'm not going to quit until I get to that point. And what I found both with myself and, and with you know, the, the, the readers and, and people who have tried this on a, thousands of different skills is everyone has that experience of being like, oh my gosh, this is so frustrating. I want to stop. And it's the pre-commitment part that makes it much easier in the moment when you're having that emotional experience and, and the, the experiencing the mental difficulty to say, you know what? This is okay. This is an expected part of the process. There's nothing wrong with me. It doesn't mean I'm bad. It just means that I'm a, I, I ran into something that is a predictable part of the process. And if I just keep going, I'm going to get it. And when they keep going, they do. And that's how it works. And that's why it works. Yeah, that's such a good point. And real quick with the 20 hours, is it 20 hours in like a week or two weeks? Or is it just throughout a doesn't year. Matter. It doesn't matter. Okay, cool. Yeah. doesn't matter. I usually recommend kind of as a, a sane default, um, think like 20 to 40 minutes a day over the course of a month or two. Hmm. Um, it really depends on the skill, but, um, that's in, in terms of planning, that's a structure that I've seen work for lots of people. Hmm. Yeah. I like that. You use the golf example. Cause I, I think I just passed that 20 hour point where I'm now starting to get a bit better and like I hated doing it at first because I would just embarrass myself in front of people. And now I'm like at the point where I'm confident enough to go in front of people I don't know, swing a golf club. And it may not be the prettiest thing in the world, but it'll kind of <laughs> get from point A to point B and I'm, I'm more confident. But you gain the confidence with experience and everything too, so. Totally. One of my favorite parts about using this as a framework is it's, it's recursive. So mm. you can do it over and over and over again. And so, you know, maybe, you know, going with the golf example, you can invest 20 hours and get to a certain point and ask yourself, like, did I get what I was looking for? Is this, you know, is more investment in this area something that's going to be great for me? And for some skills, it may not be. Um, you, you might be like, all right, you know, I, I got what I was looking for. I'm going to go, you know, learn this other thing now. For some skills, and, and golf is a really great example of this, People play golf for decades. And one of the reasons is that there's always something to work on. And so you can use the exact same process to be like, all right, I'm comfortable on the course. I'm comfortable swinging this club. My driver skills need a lot of work. I'm just going to focus on this area of my game right now, get a lot of practice at the driving range, and that will be, that'll be great. I'm just going to invest here, do the same thing. 
Um, one of the skills that I learned in the process of doing the research for the first 20 hours was computer programming. I had done a little bit in, in college. I had the experience of like, this is terrible. I have no idea why somebody would want to spend their time doing this. You know, because it was it was artificial problems. It didn't make any didn't make any sense. Didn't connect to anything. But once I decided, or once I realized that I had real problems that could be solved by getting good at this, like now I have the interest. Now I have the motivation. And I okay, so I I finished the manuscript for for first twenty hours almost nine years ago. And I'm still programming and I'm still getting better at it. And I'm still finding ways to improve or things to practice because, you know, I, I haven't reached the point where like additional time and effort spent doing this is not going to be a high value use of, of time for me. And so, you know, that's, that's the wonderful thing. Like you can learn, you can increase the variety of things that you're able to do but you can use the exact same process to increase the depth of your knowledge and experience and skills in the highest value things that you know how to do as well. And that's that, that to me really underscores how important and how universal and how useful this approach is uh, to the topic. I love that. And you can use it forever too. Like you mentioned, you can still utilize it in different areas of your life. It's not just like, I'm going to use it once and then stop. I mean, the, the 20 hour rule uh, method here can work for it for anything. So I, I love that. It's very practical. Yeah. Um, just to recap and, and uh, fill in any blanks that I missed, but you got figure out what actually skill you want to learn, deconstruct that skill, research it, uh, remove all possible distractions that you can, and then give it that, that 20 hour uh, kind of period to that skill set. You get ex exactly right. Perfect. So uh, I guess last question for you, what would be your just one word, Josh, to, to kind of describe, uh, I guess, your journey that you've had so far in life? Uh, circuitous. I love that. That's amazing. <laughs> I, I'm not gonna lie. I don't, I don't know how to spell that word, but I love that that's the word. I would have to look it up too. Yeah. But yeah, like, I think that's, that's the fun part of life, right? Like you, you explore and you experiment and you learn a whole bunch of different things. You learn what, what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And you combine the, what you know and the things that work into, into something that's, that's really grand. Um, I think a lot of people have this image of life as like, you know, I know exactly what I want. I know exactly how I'm going to achieve it. And you just like go in that direction until you, you know, reach the finish line. And that's a successful life. That's, that's, I don't know a single person on the face of the earth that has that particular story. And it really helps to not just, not just realize, but to embrace that there's a lot of randomness. There's a lot of trial and error. There's, there's a lot of trying to some, something to see if you like it or if it works for you. And I think that that whole idea of experimentation or exploration as, as an approach or as a practice, like something to be embraced mm. is highly undervalued. And so, you know, more, more flights of fancy, more trying something to see if you like it, um, is, is always an approach that, um, has, uh, has provided benefits that I never expected. That's amazing. Thanks for sharing that. And I think it just gets everyone excited to go out there and actually take action, which is, is at the end of the day, really what matters most uh, on a lot of things. So thanks for saying that word and kind of practical example there. Absolutely. Yeah. So wh where, uh, where can people connect with you, Josh? I mean, what all do you have going on? I know you have three books out right now. So I'd love for you just to kind of take from there and update uh, the listeners on everything. Yeah, the, the best place to find more information about my work and my research and the crazy experiments that I'm up to is at joshkaufman.net. Um, and, and I do, if, if you're interested specifically in the personal MBA or the first 20 hours, um, you can go to personalmba.com or first20hours.com and find information specifically uh, related to the book. But yeah, it's, uh, I, I am in the middle of all sorts of, of crazy and interesting projects. Um, I work with early stage entrepreneurs, um, helping get businesses off the ground or, um, 
call it accidental entrepreneurs who find themselves, you know, they making something valuable, but realizing that they don't really have any uh, business knowledge or experience and, and wanting to level up their skills in, in those areas. So uh, if you're interested in that, again, uh, joshkaufman.net is the, the best place to find me and, and reach out. Perfect. Well, Josh, thank you so much for hopping on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to have you. And uh, again, man, I, I hope you just continue to do what you're doing because I love all the content you're putting out there. Thanks, Chris. I, I really appreciate that. And, and thanks for being such a wonderful host. I appreciate it. Well, that's it, guys. Thanks again for taking the time to tune into this week's episode of Next Level Minds. Definitely check out The Personal MBA. I've personally read that book and it has drastically changed my life in a positive way. So be sure to check it out. Definitely look at Josh's website. He's got some amazing content on there. And be sure to share this episode with a family member, friend, or colleague who you think will get some value out of it. And as we like to say here, your mindset is your greatest weapon for the battle of success.